Hey everyone, Pastor Blake Harkup here from Bedrock, Sarasota. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome you to our podcast. We hope that you get to know God more, that you feel encouraged, and that you see how God's moving in your life from a brand new perspective. Enjoy today's message. Everyone hanging in there okay? All right, good. You enjoyed waking up a little bit cooler this morning. It felt good. Uh, I'm enjoying this weather. It, it feels a little bit different. All of us have sweaters on, and it's only 60-something degrees. But uh, I am glad that you're here with us this morning. We're starting a brand-new series, which is actually going to be our Christmas series this year. As we get ready to go into Christmas, isn't it crazy to think in just a few weeks we have Thanksgiving, and then, I mean, warp speed to the end of the year, right? And so as we began to pray about what it was that we thought that God was leading us to do as a church and how we could prepare for this season, you know, we can do all the normal Christmas messages and at some of our events and things like that, you'll hear some of those things. But I think we can look at Christmas in a little bit of a different way in this season. So the name of our new series is Promised. And, you know, as we take a look, a lot of us begin to kind of uh, there's the great divide in the Bible, right? There's the New Testament and the Old Testament. And a lot of us focus on the New Testament. And there's nothing wrong with the New Testament. I love it. It's incredible. But over half of your Bible is the Old Testament. And all of the Old Testament was looking forward to Christ coming to this earth, right? If we thought about our um, the Bible as a pinnacle and the story of history as this kind of mountain, all of the Old Testament is looking forward to the cross. Everything is looking forward to that moment with anticipation of this Messiah who was going to come into the world to save his people. But then now we're on the other side of that moment. And for us, we all look back to that moment, to the cross, as our hope. We look back to that as this time. But what you realize is, is when Jesus was born, all of these prophecies in the Old Testament that were looking forward to him were beginning to come to fruition. All of these promises and things that, that people were waiting for and hoping for and, and, and desperate for were, were coming as Jesus arrived on earth. And so as we look at Christmas, even one of the prophecies that we'll look at comes from the book of Malachi where it says that the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. Right, that this savior of the nation, and if you know anything about Bethlehem, think of maybe Arcadia. Okay, think about something way out that no one would really care about. That no one would think, you think the Messiah is going to be born in Jerusalem or, or another large city or in these areas, right? And, but no, it's Bethlehem and he's born in a manger. In fact, in just a few weeks, um, I'll be taking a group of people from our church and beyond to Israel. And we are actually going to go to Bethlehem, and we're going to be there for the lighting of the Christmas tree service. And actually, my buddy Jordan is going to be preaching a Christmas message about Jesus in what's called Manger Square in Bethlehem, which is a Palestinian territory, which is mainly Islamic. And so we're going to have this opportunity to go celebrate that, and I may be recording a couple special things from there for you. But all of this comes to this idea that, that the promises of God are so, so important for us to realize and so important for us to come to fruition with. And so 
I wanted to kind of open up today's message with this scripture that is really a theme for everything that we're going to do these next couple of weeks. And my hope is that you'll see that this is one unified story. This isn't Old Testament and all that stuff is done. There are things in here that give testimony to what is happening now and will happen in the future. But listen to Luke chapter 24. Listen to these verses. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see, right? So this verse kind of comes into context after Jesus has raised from the dead. All of these prophecies begin to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back to life because Jesus is really showing who he is. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples now, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken and slow of heart to believe in, in all of this, what is necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory. And look at what he says. In beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, that's a way of saying the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all that they have said, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. Jesus says, hey, I know you guys don't understand all of this. I know you guys don't see all of this. I know I'm back from the dead. That's a lot to deal with. Okay, but, I, but you're slow to believe. You're, a lot of you are Jewish. You grew up knowing this. In fact, if you were a Jewish young man, when you would memorize the first five books of the Bible. I mean, imagine that. Some of us are like, I can't get one verse down. You got five books? And Jesus goes, all of the things in the law, Moses, and the prophets that concern me, he began to teach them. And here is what my hope is for this series. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened. This is going to be a really important theme for us throughout this series, that their eyes were opened, that they saw the truth, and they recognized him being Jesus, and he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, look at, this is my prayer for us in this series, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. That the disciples and those whom Jesus had shown his resurrected self to and who he began to really show what the Old Testament was saying about him, they said our hearts were burning inside of us. We were so excited to see all that God was doing and all that he had fulfilled in Christ and in Christ alone. What it is, is like light bulbs were going off in their hearts, in their minds. Have you ever had those moments where you read something in the Bible and then you're like, wait a second, I think I've seen something like this before. And you can go back, you find, you know, oh, there's a, okay, I need to go to Psalm 82.6. And you go and you're like, oh, this is one big story. And that gives so much authenticity to this book. I mean, imagine thousands of years with multiple people during like different times, multiple prophecies that are come together and tell this one story of God. If that's not a miracle, anyone ever play the game telephone? Right, you start here, I whisper something, and then it gets to the back of the room and it's a totally different message. Yet we have one unified story and we can rely on this story 
Not because we go, well, just take it by faith. Absolutely take it by faith. But we have manuscripts that are thousands of years old that show that this is not edited. This gives testimony to the fact that this is a not only religious document, a historical one. And so I want to give us this idea because we're going to look at eight different prophecies in this series, right? So did everyone get a coin? You got your coin? Pull out your coin. Who thought you'd make money coming to church, right? It's not much, 50 cents, inflation. It's going to be worth like 20 in a few days. But hey. (laughs) So here's why you got this coin. There's going to be dual purpose for this. I like to have things that help me remember, okay? I like to have things that I I can attack. Not that it's an idol. It's a reminder, okay? So here's what I want you to understand. We chose eight prophecies, probably the biggest messianic prophecies, because of one particular reason. See, in the Old Testament, there are 48. I'm going to give you a lot of numbers here in a second, so just wake up. Come on, church, right? There's 48 specific messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. That means prophecies about this Messiah who is going to come and save Israel. Jesus not only fulfilled those 48, there's 324 prophecies in the Bible that Jesus fulfills. 324 prophecies. Now you go, well, that's not, I mean, that's a lot, but not that many. Okay, I'm going to put this into context for you. You got a coin. The reason we chose eight prophecies is one timing, but two because of the math. You're like, math? I'm at church. Math matters, right? So here's the deal. For Jesus to not just fulfill 324 or the 48 specific messianic prophecies, for Jesus to fulfill just eight, here's how we're going to picture this. So the likelihood statistically that Jesus, one person, would be able to fill eight prophecies is 10 to the 17th power. And you're like, wow, what does that even mean? No one knows. So here we go. The reason you got a half dollar, because some mathematicians figured out how to help us visualize this. If you took half dollars and you stack them two feet tall, okay? One on top of the other, two feet tall. And you took those stacks and you covered the entire landmass of the state of Texas, So every square inch of the state of Texas is covered two feet deep in half dollars, okay? Then you took one of these half dollars and you marked it. Then you got a big, 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 big stick and you mixed everything up and you blindfolded a guy and had him parachute out of a plane and drop onto the state of Texas. It would be like him blindfolded picking out that coin on the first try. Eight prophecies. Jesus fulfills 48 messianic and 324 other prophecies. Here's why this is important. I don't have the faith to not believe in Jesus anymore. I, I, I don't have faith in those kinds of numbers to, to believe. And, and we're going to look at some other things to try to help us just comprehend how incredibly big this is. And so my hope is, is as you see these prophecies, you're reminded of the one who is able to do it all. Right? I mean, think about that. It's a quadrillionth of a chance. You're like, I don't know what that is. It's a, 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 a thousand billionth is a quadrillion that he would do this. 
that he would be the fulfillment. And so as I began to think about this, and sometimes you may doubt. Does anyone in here deal with doubt? I do. Absolutely. I, I've doubted in my life. Sometimes I need to remind my doubt how impossible this all actually is. And just go, look, if I, I may not, I'm not, not understand everything, but this is impossible. Yet he did it. And sometimes I need my heart to tell, my head to tell my heart what's going on. He's good. He's wonderful. He is who he says he is. And so not only were these promises fulfilled, but his promises to me will be fulfilled. And I need to be reminded of these things. And so as we thought about this series, we said, where do we want to start? And there's no better place to start than the beginning. The very first prophecy of Jesus in the Bible and it happens at the beginning of the Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. And what's going to happen in this is we're going to preach on these passages where the Messiah is promised. Because the Messiah is promised as a solution to people's problems. Right? He said, like, he is coming. He's going to be here because he's the solution to your issue in your life right now. And Jesus enters as this promised one into the world in the greatest problem that we all have. All of us in this room fall in the same boat in the same category this morning. All of us have a problem that entered in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have uh, your Bible with you, you open up to Genesis, just start at the beginning and you just go over a couple pages. Mine, it's on page two. We're not that far in, okay? Isn't that funny? We're not that far into the story and already we need a promise. Hmm. So Genesis chapter three, I'm going to read through this and I'm going to preach on this passage as we go through it. I don't want to bore you to death, but I promise you, you're going to see that you have the same problem that Adam and Eve had in the beginning. See, the problem is that we're going to see this morning is that we all have a great enemy. We all have this great enemy who's dead set against us moving forward. And a lot of people now, I have a lot of Christians that come to me and say, like, I don't know if I really believe in the devil or Satan or the evil one. I, I, I don't know if I really believe in that. I'm not sure. Do you know that Jesus teaches on Satan? Jesus is tempted by Satan. The one in quadrillionth person thought it was important enough for his 33 years here on earth to tell you about the evil one. So we might need to pay attention to what this guy said. Right? Because he's pretty unique. You're one in a million. He's one in quadrillion. Okay? Like, he is important. And so the Bible begins to tell us this story of how everything was created wonderful, but things go bad quick because of this evil one. Now, the serpent, the serpent represents Satan, the enemy, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That's going to give us an indication. Anyone ever get creeped out by snakes? Anyone in here creeped out by snakes? Yeah, they're creepy, right? Literally, they're creepy, right? And so that's what's going on. This serpent enters into the story, and he begins to talk to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve have been created. They started working. They start taking care of the garden. They name all the animals. Life is good. Life is perfect. But Satan had a different plan. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
What happens here is God puts two trees in the Garden of Eden. Right? We all know the one. The one is the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, don't touch that tree. Don't touch that tree. Not because God is mean, because God knew what would happen. Right? How many of us as parents tell our kids, don't touch that, don't eat that, don't do that, because you're mean or because you care? Right? So God says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And the other tree is the tree of life. That's where you and I are meant to live. You and I are meant to live and built to live in the tree of life. But so many of us live in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan comes in and says, hey, let me just ask you a question. Did God really say not to eat of any tree? How many of you all know that when someone questions the truth that you believe, you're on shaky ground? And when you're on shaky ground, you'll make poor decisions. Because when you feel like the foundation of your life is moving, you want to get to solid ground. So you'll try anything and grab anything to try to help you find stability. How many of us in this room have had the enemy say the exact same thing? Did God really say? Because we all think that the enemy just comes in and manhandles you, right? Very rarely, because with just one question... He can set your foot to moving, and he knows that when you're moving, you're easily manipulated. And so he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she says, no, listen, There's just one tree we're not supposed to eat from. Just one. And if we eat it or touch it, we'll die. Death was foreign to Adam and Eve. Death did not exist at this time. So the enemy then goes and says this. But God said, you now shall eat of the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Here's how the text would really kind of begin to translate this. You will not die right now. You will not die today. Right? Like it's, you know the great offers that come on the radio that that are like, oh, you get this free thing. And then like at the end of the ad, there's this guy that's like, turns and conditions. And you're like, what? Right? And they're like, basically what they're saying is, there's no way you're winning this. Maybe Satan said, you will not die today. You know, oh, okay, I won't die today. There's a, there's a little bit of a disclaimer at the end of what he's saying here. You will not surely die. For God knows, he, now he begins to go into doubt. He begins to help her doubt, like, did God really say? And listen, if you eat of this, you will not die. You're not going to die. Did God really say? And then he takes the one who was the lover of their soul and makes him the enemy. How many of you, when you begin to believe the lies of the enemy, God all of a sudden becomes your enemy? He's against you. He's not for you. He doesn't want what's best for you. He wants to take things away from you. He wants to keep you held back. Do you see how we have this great enemy in our life? He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. 
What would be a phrase or a thing that we would say in the world right now that that's saying? See, Satan tempts Adam and Eve with the very same thing he was tempted with, pride. To be like God. And I will, I will, like, you can try to argue with me on this. No one's ever been able to change my mind. I think the source of every sin in the world is pride. At the source of every single thing that we are not supposed to do in this life, and not because God's just like a cosmic killjoy, because he actually cares for your soul, at the root of it is pride. I'm owed this. I deserve this. I want this. I've earned this. This will make me happy. I just want to be happy. And so that's what he says. He says, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That's exactly what happens to you and I. Do you realize the same process that the enemy uses on Adam and Eve, he uses on you and I, right? Because what does he say? He's, he causes them to question their truth, and now they're on shaky ground. And when they're on shaky ground, he makes the lover of their soul the enemy of their soul. And then he makes sin attractive, right? He says this, it's good for food. She saw and goes, it's good for food. What does that mean? It will help me. Look at that fruit. By the way, it's not an apple, okay? That's, like a, that's just someone who hated apples, you know, it was like a little kid back in the day, the mom was like eating an apple, and he's like, you know, that was the fruit in the garden. And everyone's like, I guess so, right? And so it wasn't an apple. It's this nondescript fruit. So what happens here is Eve looks at this thing and goes, it's good for me. How many of us fall into things that we should not because we go, you know what, that's good for me. That's going to be good for me. And we outweigh what is bad, or we outweigh what was said to do, and we just go, hey, this will be good to me. And then it says it was a delight to the eyes. It was attractive. How many of us know that the things that we shouldn't be doing, the enemy makes attractive? But sin is kind of like sour milk. When you look at sour milk, it looks good. It looks fine. You're like, that looks like normal milk. It's not until you open it and find out what's on the inside that you realize how wretched it really is. Guys, look, can I just be honest with you? The reason that we sin is because it looks good. The reason that we sin is because it's not like, oh, that's terrible, awful, ugly. It's like that's alluring and attractive, and some of me wants that, and I'll be happy, and so our pride gets initiated. It's only after you participate in those things that then you realize the consequence of them. Right? Do you realize that sin is meant to be alluring and attractive and all of it appeals to our pride? And then it says this, it will make one wise. What does that mean? It will give me everything I always wanted. See, sin has a delivery problem. Okay? Sin will overpromise and underdeliver every single time in your life. I mean, like adults, kids, everyone, like, okay, sin, go eat all of your Halloween candy right now. Go, it's yours, you earned it. All of these Reese's Pieces, they'll make you happy. And then you eat too much, and what happens? You're regretting the consequence of gluttony and because you're to the toilet, and you're, all of the Reese's Pieces are coming back, right? Like, it's all of the time it works like this. All of the time it works like this. And so that's exactly what happened. And the Bible says, verse 7, 
that then the eyes of both of them were open after they ate the fruit. Remember, it said that in our verse, that their eyes were open. It's not a good eye opening. Have you ever been somewhere or in a situation where you open your eyes and you're like, how did I get here? How did I get to this moment? How did I end up in this place? We should have kept the lights off. Because when I opened up the light and the light shone on to what is actually in this place, this is not a good place. I remember sleeping in in a couple third world countries and I was like, you just keep the lights off. Just, we got to sleep here. We don't need the light to be brought in. We're just going to keep it dark, okay? Like, just, we don't know. So sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? Like, just keep the lights off. But that's what happened. Their eyes are open to everything, and they immediately regret what happens. Verse 7, their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked. Everything was fine, but all of a sudden, now they're exposed. And they realize that they're vulnerable. And they realize that there's something going on. And they realize that there's an issue. And for the very first time, they were uncomfortable with each other. Their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made for them themselves loincloths. If you're sewing fig leaves together, you're desperate, right? Like they're little, like you go, I got to get to work, you know, like, and you're hurrying up. Do you notice how as soon as sin entered the world, desperation did too? And they heard that the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. They hid from God whom they had perfect relationship before. But as soon as their eyes were open to how bad things really were, because they weren't meant to handle some of these things, they hid from the lover of their soul, from their creator, who the day before they walked in the garden with. They hid. And I want you to notice what happens here, because things get, go from bad to worse. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Not, Where are you? The text indicates that his voice was soft. Where are you? And notice God's soft response causes Adam to do probably the first right thing here. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The best thing that Adam did is he didn't continue to hide from God. He walked out. Hey, okay, so I heard your voice, and I was freaked out. Because I've realized for the very first time that I'm naked and all of a sudden there's separation between you and me and I thought I was going to get the hammer. See, that's what so many of us think when we fall into these things like Genesis 3, that God's waiting. You know, like those whack-a-mole, boom, boom, boom things. That's what we feel like God's doing. Waiting for us to poke up our head like I sinned and God's like, Instead, God goes, "Where, where are you? Because God's a father. And when your kids mess up, what do you do? When your kids really mess up, not like, oh, they did this little thing, like really mess up. You look for them. You're concerned for them. You know that they need you. And you're going to say to them, I'm going to need you to trust me. I'm going to have to help you get out of this. Does, Does the beginning of the book of Genesis relate to any of our lives? Does the book of Genesis, see, this book begins to delineate the entire story of the Bible. Right? Like, It's going to tell you what we're all going to face and the problem that we're all going to have. And so what happens here is he said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And man said, look at what happens, weasel. The woman whom you gave to me, gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Right? He didn't say I ate. My bad. He blame shifts like all of us, right? Like, hey, God, the good thing that you brought into my life, I'm not going to say the blame's on you, but hey, she made me eat. God's like, oh, okay. Adam, step up, right? Like, just admit it. Own it. And I promise I'm going to do something. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? Look what she does. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here's the thing. When you get to heaven's doors or you're at the great white throne judgment or whatever it is, your excuse won't be the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. He's going to go, you participated. I'm going to deal with the devil. I really am dealing with the devil. You know that hell was not created for people. It was created for the devil. He says, I'm going to deal with him, but that's not valid because I've given you a way out. I've given you a story. I've given you a hope, and I've given you a savior. See, what you realize here is that in this moment, some things enter into the world that are so foreign, right? Because remember, the Bible said that in verse 3, like she said, if we touch this tree or we eat of it, we're going to die. And all of us think, oh, it's just physical death. That's what's entering the world. Much more happened in this story. And this is what sin will do to all of us. Because what, what happened? There was relational death. Adam and Eve were naked. Oh, let's separate. You go get some fig leaves. I'll get some fig leaves. We'll put some clothes on. There's relational death. They were perfectly one, and now they're separated. Not only that, there's spiritual death. They hid from God. Their spiritual relationship with their creator had now a death problem in it because you don't hide from people who you know that love you. But not only was there this literal relational death, there's emotional death. There's emotional death, verse 10. They started blaming each other. They can't handle it. They start casting blame and doubt, which causes further separation. And then we know that there's physical death. And how many of us can attest to the fact in our life that when we do things we should not be doing, there is relational, emotional, spiritual death, right? How many of us have done things and we can't talk to family members? How many of our family members did things and we can't talk to them? How many of us feel right now like, I've done too much in my life, I can't talk to God. God doesn't want me. There's too much going on in my life. I've messed up too much. See, you and I have a problem. We have an enemy who's dead set against us. And this, this moment that played out right before us in these first couple of chapters, our first couple of verses of chapter 3, is the story that all of us hit. I mean, does it seem so foreign because it was Adam and Eve? Or can you go, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Because the Bible says that when one man fell, everybody did. And sin entered the world. And everyone, okay, I just want to say this, okay? Adam's not off the hook. The Bible says, this is on you, bro. You're supposed to lead. But you know why? Who named all the animals? Adam. And Adam named animals kind of like what they were like. And he named the serpent, which means cunning or crafty. 
And so when, she, when Adam was there, he knew who the serpent was. He knew what he was like. He knew some of these things, and he participated anyway. Adam is not off the hook here. If anybody should have done something, Adam should have said, remember I named him serpent? Put the fruit down. Like, put this down. Do you remember who he is? He's cunning and crafty above everything. He might have an agenda. And so what happens here is sin enters the world and God begins to deal with the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. If you don't think that God's dealing with the evil that's in your life, just realize that God immediately began to deal with evil. And there were consequences for the enemy, but there are consequences for Adam and Eve. And some of us are facing some consequences in our life that are natural consequences for what we're doing. And let me tell you something. Some of us are on the verge in this room of making huge mistakes. You are playing in a garden you do not belong in. And you are considering eating fruit that is forbidden. And God is saying and can use this moment and say, use Adam and Eve's fall as a learning lesson. Who is tempting you to do this? Because as it started with a shaky foundation in who I am and what you know to be true, why do you think in our culture this book is attacked almost above all things? Because if the enemy can get us to not believe in this, then we are going to be tossed to and fro all of the time. All of the time. Because if I can get you to doubt the truth, then I can move you. And that's exactly what Satan did. But here's the greatest part. See, I could end the message here and you're all like, this is awful. Like, I feel terrible. What's going to happen in my life? But see, as soon as things got bad, the promises, the rescue began. God immediately entered the situation and immediately began to try to remedy it. As soon as things went bad, God entered in and found Adam and Eve and said, yep, there's going to be some consequences, but I'm going to give you a promise that one day this is going to be fixed. And here's what you need to hear right now, because some of you, the enemy may be saying, you're all of those things in Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 14. You're all of those awful things. You, you've messed up and you've done all of these things, but you've got to keep reading. Genesis 3, 15. He talks to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Another way of translating that is, he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. All of this begins to look towards the cross. In fact, there's this really kind of churchy term that's used here to describe this moment. It's called, I'm going to use it, and then I'll explain it. It's called the proto-euangelion. That word euangelion means good news. It's what the New Testament refers to as the gospel. It's good news that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again for the forgiveness of sin. That is good news. This is, proto means pre. This is the pre-good news. What God is saying is, I've got some good news for you. I am going to deal with this enemy of your soul and I promise you he's going to be crushed. 
He's not going to get away with this. And I know that things were just really bad, but notice that God isn't right in this moment first about punishing Adam and Eve. He's about punishing our enemy. He's immediately going, these are my children. There's going to be some things that we're going to have to deal with, but I'm after you, buddy. I'm coming for you. And so I hope you shake and I hope you're worried because I am on the way and I am sending one, the promised one, into this world and he is going to annihilate you. You should have never messed with my kids. And some of you need to hear that, that God is standing in front of you right now as the enemy accuses you and you're sitting here and you've messed up and all of these things have happened and you've been hiding in your sin and hiding in your shame and God says, no, 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 we're not gonna make this a prison. Come out of your shame. Where are you? Did you eat of the things that I told you not to eat? Come here, you. Come here. I do this with my kids. I wish I had one of them with me. When they fight each other and one gets really aggressive or, you know, whatever, I grab one by the hand, come with me. You, what did you do to them? There's going to be some serious consequences for you. And I stand in front of my kid and I protect the one. And, man, if it wasn't my own kids, if it was another kid, I would still do the same. I'd be like, come here, you little punk, right? Like, I'm going to deal with you. Nobody messes with my kids. And God feels the same way about you. You are in your sin and your shame, and maybe you can't even look towards God right now. And God says, no, no, no. We're not going to stay in jail. Come out. Let's go deal with him. There's going to be some consequences. But some of those consequences are natural, and they're going to teach you we're not going to do this again. Because what the enemy meant to kill you, I'm using to redeem you. Now you, there's no redemption. I'm coming for you. And when Jesus was born, hope entered the world. The God who stands in front of us and takes all the accusation, all of the sin, all of the shame and everything, got on a tree and said, I'm standing in front of them. And when they believe in me and look towards me, I will heal them and you will be crushed. Genesis 3.15. Did anyone watch the movie The Passion? There's a scene in The Passion that goes right back to this, right? Jesus is in the garden and there's this serpent that comes out while he's praying. And in the scene, Jesus stands up. He's about to go to the cross. And what he does is he heel stomps that snake and kills it. Genesis 3.15. They're saying the end is coming for you, my friend. But Satan is a sore loser, right? He's, you know, like people, you know when you're going to lose so they hurt other people on the other team or they, they're just punks. That's Satan. He's a punk. He already knows he's lost. I mean, he, you think he's unaware of the book of Revelation? So he's like, you know what? I'm going to do the best I can to take everyone I can. But there's more to what goes on. See, because the promise is the rescue begins in Genesis 3.15, but the solution is our perfect payment because sin put a debt on our life. Sin put a debt on our life that we, we, we owe, but we have a perfect payment. Listen to what the Bible says, and I want you to see how this book 
ties together throughout the entire thing. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, this refers back to this moment. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam, Adam means man. His name literally means man, Adam. And just as he sinned, sin entered the whole world and all were guilty of it. Look at what it says in verse 17 of that same chapter. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So just as they messed up, And Adam imperfectly set us all on a terrible trajectory. Jesus comes into the world and says, all of you, when you believe in me, can have righteousness. Just as one man messed up, Jesus is the better Adam. The book of Hebrews talks about this. The book of Hebrews has what we call the hall of faith. Not the hall of fame, the hall of faith. Moses, Abraham, Adam. The book of Hebrews just goes, yeah, don't look to them. Look to Jesus. He's better. The whole hall of faith, they all messed up. They all weren't enough. Jesus is enough. But not only did Jesus go, look, we've got a problem. The solution is a perfect payment because the reality is is that you're going to need me. In the gospel or in the book of 1 John 3, 8, this is where the prophecy is said to be fulfilled. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He entered in to crush our enemy. But like I just said, I know this is a lot of scripture, and I can send out the notes, but you guys got to realize this book is telling you a story. And he wants to make it shaky because he knows one thing. You shall know the truth. And the truth will set you free. See, because I told you that Satan's a punk. And he's going to mess with you. And he's going to kind of come after you repeatedly. And so what did Jesus do when he left this earth after he died? He said, look, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending one to help you. One of the names of the Holy Spirit. The helper. Not the doer. The helper. Okay? 1 John 4.4. Little children. You are from God and have overcome them, referring to our enemy in the world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God sent the Holy Spirit so that you could commune with God constantly and God could help you through the rest of this life. Because not only did Jesus want to save you, he wants to give you eternal life, but he wants to give you abundant life now. In Genesis 3.15, is all about how God began to do this. And when we celebrate on December 25th, we celebrate the one who crushed our enemy, who saved our souls. And we remember the day that hope entered the world. And so finally, as I end with this, the hope. What is the hope for you and I? I mean, it's great if there's promises and if they're fulfilled, but how does that actually affect my life? What does that mean? Verse 20, Luke chapter 24, 44 to 47. Then he said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you. This is Jesus talking. That everything written about me in the law of Moses 
and the prophets and the Psalms will be fulfilled or must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds, once again, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the one promise in Genesis 3.15, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That's the hope that every person who would confess and believe that Jesus Christ is the promised one of Genesis 3.15, the serpent crusher, the answer to our problem, the answer to the greatest problem that we have, this enemy of our soul. He goes, that we would proclaim that to the entire world. And on December 25th, I will raise a hallelujah and say a yes and amen, for he entered the world and he began the rescue and he purchased me out of my sin. And when he dies and we remember at Easter that he rose again, I'm going to remember that everything that was promised at the back of this book was not just for then, it's for now so that I may believe, because he's one in quadrillion. So how does this actually hit our lives? See, a lot of us, I got to get this perspective for you and I in this moment. And so I, I pulled up some other statistics that maybe will help us. Like, anybody in here worried about getting crushed by a meteor? Are you, like, walking out with a shield? Like, today could be the day. Who knows? Do you know you have a 1 in 700,000th chance of being crushed by a meteor? That means some people have been crushed by meteors in this world. What a bad day. What's that? Boom, you're done, right? <laughs> or how about this? You have a 1 in 11 millionth chance to die in a plane crash. I'm leaving. I have to jet after this, like physically have to jet after this. I have to go to Houston, like after this sermon. So if you don't see me, it's because I'm jetting, right? What about this? Okay, we're not Catholic, but here's the deal. If you want to become a saint, like in the Catholic Church, one in 20 million. One in 20 million. How about that's with eight zeros behind it, right? Getting audited, some of us are freaked out, one in 175. You might need to think about how you're living your life. <clears throat> Becoming president, one in 10 million. How about winning the lotto? One in 260 million. That, that, sorry, that has eight zeros behind the first number. The likelihood of Jesus becoming the Savior of the world and fulfilling eight prophecies, one with 17 zeros behind it. And that's just eight of them. There's 40 more to go just about the Messiah. And there's over 280 more about him. And so here's how I want to help you. See, this has a dual purpose. Not only to remind you he's one in quadrillion, but how many of you when you were kids you would talk to somebody and they would, um, like you would get in an argument and you'd say, want to bet? Want to bet? Right? I'll bet you 20 bucks this happened, right? Like, and before Google and smartphones, you could do that and you could get away with it because no one ever paid up, right? Like you're like, you want to bet? Right? 20 bucks. Now look, I'm not saying betting is good, but the Bible doesn't specifically condone it, so I want no letters, okay? But here's the deal. How many of us, even though he's one in quadrillion, have a faith crisis? See, I can give you all the math. 
I can give you all of the things in the world to help you feel confident in this. But the reality is, Adam and Eve lived in perfect relationship with God, and Satan was able to get them to doubt. You and I come from a broken relationship with God. How much easier is it to get us to doubt? And see, sometimes we all need our heart to inform our head, but sometimes we need our head to inform our heart. Right? Because remember, when sin entered the world, emotional death did. Heart. And so here's what I want you to think about. When you begin to doubt that God entered this world, when you begin to doubt that Genesis 3.15 actually got fulfilled, when you begin to doubt that Jesus actually died for you, when you begin to doubt that Jesus forgives you, when you begin to doubt that God loves you because you want to know how much God loves you, you need to only look to a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's how much God loves you. And so here's what I want you to do. See, because the enemy is trying to shake you into soft sand so he can move you. And when you begin to doubt, you remember who Jesus was and who was promised. And when he is who he was promised to be, then you can believe the promises he has for you. And when you begin to doubt, I want you to take this coin and I want you to look at the enemy and I want you to say, want to bet? Because I was always willing to bet 20 bucks or five pongs or, you know, things like that. Like, you guys remember pogs? Slammers, right? Like, I was all into that. I'd, bet, I'd be like, here, you can have 10, right? I was always willing to bet when I knew I was right. And for some of us, the enemy's, like, he's eating your lunch. You're being thrown around right now. You're believing every lie he throws at you, and you have no defense. And some of you, like, coming here feels like judgment day instead of celebration. Because he's going to, if he can't keep you from knowing Christ, he's certainly going to keep you from enjoying him. And so when you begin to doubt, you need your head to inform your heart. And you say, he's one in quadrillion. And if he is the fulfillment of all these promises then I bet I can believe his promises about me. Want to bet? And I guarantee you this. When you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And so these promises aren't just to fill us with confidence here. They're meant to fill us with confidence here. These promises change our life. And so as we begin to end this morning I just want to pray with us and begin to allow us to respond because sometimes we forget who he is. And so I pray that this half dollar reminds you that he is who he says he is. And he's done what he said he was going to do. And if you've believed in that, you are who he says you are. And so with just every head bowed and eyes closed for just a minute, maybe for the very first time, God is calling you to believe in the one in quadrillion. To believe in the son he sent into the world. That on December 25th, we're going to celebrate. And we're going to remember and we're going to give gifts because we all received a gift when he entered this world. But he just wasn't a baby who was born. He was a savior who entered our mess. He is the God of rescue, and he's the God who's standing in front of the enemy who is accusing you.
and you are not those lies. You are exactly who he says that you are. But maybe for the very first time in your life, you need to not only believe in the birth of the Messiah, you need to believe in the work of the Messiah and that he lived the life that you and I had to live, a perfect life. And he died the death that you and I deserve because of sin. But not only that, he rose again on the third day so that the remission of sin and forgiveness of sin would enter into our lives and you and I would be rescued and we could go and tell the entire world about this Savior who loves people's souls and who has entered this world to save them. And so for the very first time in this room or online, you might say, I need to believe and confess that Jesus saved me. I don't have the faith not to believe it anymore. And if you're in this room, all you have to do is, the Bible says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And the answer to Genesis 3.15 will enter into your life and he will save you and he will stand in front of you and the enemy will be accusing you and he will say, no, this is my son and daughter. I've come for you, not them. And so for the very first time, if that's who you are in this room, you can respond to God by simply raising your hand and saying, yes, that's what I want to do and that's what I need to do. But if you're in this room and maybe you've known Jesus for a long time, but you've just, the truth's been twisted in your life, and the one who is the lover and creator and savior of your soul has somehow become a distant memory or maybe even twisted to be your enemy. And God's saying, I sent him. He is Genesis 3.15. And you've been believing lies about who you are. And he's come to crush your enemy and you no longer have to bow down. If that's you, you can raise your hand. And you just say, hands all over the room. This is not who I am. I need to believe in who you are. And I need to believe who you said that I am. Today's the day. May this coin be a reminder of your freedom. Thank you for jumping into today's message, and we truly hope that you were encouraged. If you were encouraged, would you like and share this with someone that you truly love and care about? It may just be the thing that they need to get through this week. Also, let us know how the message impacted you, and please let us know any ways that we can be praying for you. But finally, I just wanted to take a minute to thank all of our supporters and those who give generously to make all that we have and do here at Bedrock happen. If you'd like to support us, you can do that really quickly by texting 84321 with any amount and setting up text to give, or you can give on our website. Thank you once again for all that you do, and we hope to see you soon.